0: You're listening to the substandard model. Woo! Oh my god, Sam. I have I got the best fact for you today? Gosh, fucking it's going, best it fact. won't be. It, okay, it's not that great, but like, have you ever stopped to wonder why your lip skin is different from the rest of your skin?
1: Every single day of my god effing life.
0: Everyone. <laughs> Everyone asks this question, and it's such a simple and dumb question that has such a simple and dumb answer, which, which we're going to give you. Be the today. worst, most useful fact that you've ever heard. Why is it different? It's it's different thicknesses. That's the first stage. Oh no. Okay. Well. Okay. Let's just let's just start it off with that. Normal skin's about sixteen cells thick, which means you've got sixteen layers of skin cells, right? Okay. The newest okay. ones are the bottom ones, the oldest ones are the top ones. The top layer is dead skin. Yes. So those people who don't know what skin is, right? Lip skin is three to five layers thick, which means it's got a faster turnover rate, right? Um, and awesome. why is it red? It's just because it's thinner and so you can see the blood vessels underneath clearer. And then there's varying levels of melanin, which also affect your lip colour. So different people have different lip colours, but essentially the thinness means you get more red colour coming through, right? You've got extremely pale skin with no melanin. It's very pronounced. And the more melanin you've got, the less pronounced it is. And at some stages, you end up with more melanin in your lips than in your actual skin, which means your lips are darker than the rest of your face. But that's not super interesting. That's just standard stuff. Um, right. why, why is your lip skin... Let's keep asking why. Right? Why is your lip skin thinner than the rest of your skin?
1: Because it's uh, more sensitive. You want it to be sensitive...
0: To yeah, wow, what a, another boring answer. <laughs> <laughs> is there going to be anything interesting? No, no. Why Why does it need to be sensitive? Because you need to be able to tell if what you're eating is safe to eat. That's it. You need to I not eat it. glass and go, this could be good to put inside my mouth.
1: Is this glass or is this some nugget? I don't know. But if you have thin lips, then you know.
0: Why does a chimpanzee's lip look fucking nothing like our lips?
1: Oh wait, they have you mean like their whole face? They have like a massive, sort of sticky. Yeah, I'll raise face. you this:
0: name one animal in the entire animal kingdom that has lips like us.
1: they the the, uh, the snub nosed monkey. The
0: snub nosed monkey. Oh, those are those are the ones which have got lip fillers, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, are like
1: the blue the blue Chinese ones that have. Yeah, guys, like,
0: look at snub nosed monkey.
1: That is a human face right there.
0: Yeah, if you find the ones which have got the blue face and the big... They've just got, like, way too much lip filler. The thing is, these guys don't even look like human lips. They've just got, like, huge mouth areas which are bulbous.
1: They look like clams.
0: So can you not name a single other animal? Even that one was a bad example.
1: I'm struggling, honestly.
0: Right. There is no other (laughs) animal. Like, as far as I can tell, there's not one animal which has a similar lips to humans. Why? Guess what? It's it's theory. There's only theories. We've only got theories because it's really hard to find evolutionary causations with these kind of things. Tell me about it. Oh, okay, this so basically, go for it. Uh, I've heard people talking about the requirement for humans to talk and the fact that we can talk has put a larger pressure on certain sensitivity on our lips. You know I mean, what? Well, that's that's appearance-based. I do, right? I
1: do like that though.
0: Apparently our larynxes have changed a huge amount from close relatives such as chimpanzees. That's true. um, Just facilitate the ability to talk. So you can have like a huge evolutionary pressure piled on just through the need to talk to each other. I've seen other stuff with sexual attraction. I've written in my notes, sexy stuff, maybe. Is this like
1: Mick Jagger lips and stuff?
0: Yeah, I guess. Because we like kissing. Do other animals kiss? That's a question. Well, there's
1: always videos of like these two sea lions kissing, and then it's just like, oh, they're just trying to eat each other from the inside. I don't really think there is a lot of kissing going on.
0: Only humans and occasionally our close primates' relatives, like chimps and bonobos, kiss. Oh,
1: you know what, bonobos will not... I I I should have guessed bonobos, those fucking... I bet they don't stop kissing cheeky monsters.
0: There's lots of reasons why it's difficult to put a certain causation. You can kind of give your own theories and it'll become like a scientific theory if it's if it's justified. Like Sam, if you came That's up with a theory right now and said, could be because of this and it sounds half okay, then that'll probably be good enough to write down on Wikipedia as a theory.
1: I'm also sold on the sexual attraction one. So I, I reckon I could come up with one to replace that about like meat.
0: Kissing lips... Looked better, yeah. I it mean, it's hard to produce a situation.
1: Like people with fat lips are not particularly attractive, in my opinion. Is that a thing? I know that's supposed to be a thing. Like I brought up Mick Jagger. Yeah, everyone says that he's like you know the the the, the, the stereotype. I just think he he has and always will look like a complete pillow all the time.
0: Okay, I've written here. <laughs> lips separate the mucous membrane of the mouth and and the rest of our skin. Right. So this lots of animals true. have lips. That's the thing is, everyone has
1: lips because your, your mouth ends somewhere. Apart
0: from crocodiles, crocodiles don't have lips.
1: See, I also hate that fact because they kind of do. What's a lip? A lip's not like an organ. A lip's where your mouth ends. Crocodiles just, like, have sticky out teeth. No, no,
0: I, I think if your teeth are covered by a layer of flesh, then it's a lip. That's what I think. That's what I would put my definition as. See, so yeah,
1: crocodiles' teeth just, like, slot into each other. So they don't really need a layer of flesh. Yeah, but they have
0: gaps, man. They're, like, the inside of their mouth is really dry. Yeah, I know. But, like... Like, I figured lips are a way of keeping salivary, you know, mucus inside.
1: I guess. I just feel like people... But like, in the same way, people are like, oh, this animal doesn't have shoulders. And it's like, what do
0: you mean? It's a scorpion. It's a scorpion. Of course it doesn't have shoulders. It's an amoeba. Where would the shoulders be? <laughs> this amoeba doesn't have a face. <laughs> Some me breasts of a larger lips than you. It's like, What? Yeah. Um, okay, this brings me on to my second fact in this fact. It's a it's a deep dive. I like these deep dives, right? Into, into lips. All mammals have mouths, and therefore we can say all mammals, all animals have boundary layers. Uh, some might not be visible. Uh, humans are unique in their full red lips. Moving on. <laughs> I said it's a gap, or in my idea, in my head, it's a way of keeping in saliva. Right, keeping it. Moist. I like that. That's keeping good. it keeping the environment, triple environment. Keeping out the bullshit. Let's move on to saliva. Right. Oh, and let's I see. go. Why you shouldn't lick your lips, Sam? Why shouldn't you lick your lips?
1: It dries them out, and dries you get out. like you get like problems in it.
0: I don't have chapped lips like ever i've never used lip balm alia wow. always uses lip balm and she, she does gets more chapped lips than me norea has lip balm she gets more and you, lips you won't know me. then why do i not have chapped lips i have a theory sam what's my theory
1: uh is it because you just never lick your lips no i
0: lick my lips a lot probably is like... it
1: because you're just a naturally moist person
0: okay this is my theory if a person breathes predominantly through their nose they're not gonna have as much chapped lips and I breathe a lot through my <gasps> nose.
1: Are you saying that
0: Alia and Norea are mouth breathers? <laughs> yes. That is. That is. If you breathe through your mouth a lot, you're going to end up with a lot more chapped lips. And that's why often when people get sick and their nose becomes blocked, like in a cold, they breathe through their mouth and they end up with chapped lips. Right.
1: <laughs> to get through it.
0: Chapped lips. It's not very interesting what a chapped lip is. It's just, it's oh, that's just, quite it's cool. just dead lips it's just like dead skin peeling right it's just yeah you just you just lose moisture in the top layer of your lip and so it it starts peeling right great top tip learn to breathe through your nose probably will make a big difference
1: we were all designed to breathe through our nose the mouth the mouth shortcut just sort of came accidentally
0: really yeah
1: like our nose is how we're supposed to breathe
0: damn i've seen some stuff where you can only breathe through one nostril at a time is that a thing Mum?
1: That's true. You tend to have a dominant nostril where you breathe through.
0: I thought it was one nostril at a time, or like you end up with situations where people breathe through one nostril. No, but at it's, a time.
1: Yeah, they switch. They switch. And, they switch. And the yeah. nostril
0: that is of choice switches. Yes. Like yeah. every four hours or something stupid like that. I've seen. No, that is a thing. I've seen situations where if you've got, like in, in bed, Sam, this is one of those hashtag relatable moments. You've got like a snot, right? You've got a blocked nose because of something. Maybe it's hay fever. Maybe it's a cold, right?
1: Go for it. Yep. Nice. You
0: lie on your side as you're going to sleep, and the lower nostril blocks, but the upper yeah. nostril is clear. I see what you so mean. So you can only breathe through the upper nostril. I relate. I relate. What's really interesting is that when you switch and you roll over onto your other side, the blockage switches nostrils, and you could feel it happening because you can feel the blocked nostrils starting to free up, and you can feel the other nostrils starting to get blocked, right?
1: That is slightly less relatable, but I think I've had that experience now.
0: Dude, literally, I typed blocked nostril, the Google searches, it auto-filled blocked nostril one side, blocked nostril at night. Those are the top two Google searches. Well done. A deviated septum. Right. Awareness of the nasal cycle. The nose alternates between being obstructed on one side and then changes to being obstructed on the other. This is called the nasal cycle. Nasal cycle. The nasal cycle.
1: Being aware of the nasal cycle isn't typical and can indicate nasal obstruction. So you shouldn't notice when
0: it switches, Henry.
1: You're a, you're an atypical man.
0: I'm atypical. It's because yeah. I think about these things, probably. It's probably not even a physiological thing. It's probably just me lying there. The average person doesn't <laughs> give a shit. And I'm like, that's weird. <laughs> Children shortened cycles than adults with regular passive fluctuations of the nasal resistance. Adults, classic pattern. Elderly. Alternating rhythmically associated with the nasal cycle decreases with age.
1: Oh, oh so it's like arrhythmic. That's yeah, sick. Yeah. How do you recruit snot to one side of your nose through the autonomic nervous system? Is it sort of muscly? Is it sort of sort of peristalsis
0: deal? Wait, it's been shown that the cilia on the congested side suspend their motility until that side decongests. It's cilia. This... Oh, I get it! ...change on one side of the nostril to the other. Wait, 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 this Thus, the cycle ensures that one side of the nose is always moist to, to, to facilitate humidification, which is one of the three functions of the nose, the other two being filtration and warming of inspired air prior to its entering of the lungs. Oh my
1: god, that makes so much sense. That that wow. makes so much sense. So one side of the nose should be blocked at all time because it, it means that it...
0: And it has benefits for olfaction. It has benefits of smelling. Of course it does. Some odour chemicals bind with the olfactory receptors easily, even under conditions of high airflow. And other odours need time under low airflow conditions to bind with receptors. So you can block one partially and open one partially. So the blocked one can take the smell in slowly. And the really open one has really high airflow, so it can take those fast moving ones. And so the combination means you can pick up on both slow olfactory chemicals and fast olfactory chemicals. Oh,
1: that's so good. That's so good.
0: That's such a stupid thing. Turbinates consist of bony projections covered by erectile tissue much like the tissues of the penis or clitoris, so you can erect your nose. Yeah, and the cycle's called by the autonomic nervous system. Mean duration of two and a half hours... Varies widely with age, body posture, and other conditions. Body posture. Body posture. You sussy backer, man! What the fuck? <laughs> this is getting you so sussy. deep. <laughs> sussy back. This is getting so deep. What is this?
1: What have we done? How are we ever going to live laser our lives? The studied
0: and discussed in the ancient <laughs> Indian yoga or literature, of pranayama. What? <laughs> <laughs> this is the fucking greatest topic. <laughs>
1: The nasal cycle, my dude, that is a can of worms. (laughs) Look at the CT scan showing the nasal cycle. Yeah, I
0: know. It's not even, like, it's clearly a pronounced difference between one nostril and the other, and it changes back and forth. Right, I'm actually shaking.
1: (laughs) I need a minute to calm down. I'm crying and shaking. My, my...
0: Should we just go back to my original fact? That was also pretty good.
1: <laughs> the adrenaline
0: that Shut pumps it. through my veins right I'm now. I'm actually fucking... What's going on? <laughs> this is the thrill What's of, going thrill of on? science. What's going on? <laughs> Henry and Sam lost their shit on the nasal cycle, where 80% of the normal population have an oscillating nasal system, which varies the airflow from one nostril to the other every two and a half hours.
1: Shit, my God. I think I'm, get- I'm not getting any sleep tonight. Especially... <laughs>
0: you're gonna be rotating back one side to the other <laughs> yeah switching nostrils right you can't unsee this shit anymore now breathe in through your nose right now one's inhaling more than the other
1: Okay to be honest i feel like i'm in a sort of intermediary stage right now
0: right anyway can we just go to my saliva
1: <laughs> you say that a lot
0: you know when your lips dry out this is just a quick one your lips dry out they stick together why is that because the saliva when saliva is 99.5 percent water
1: that that adds up i mean
0: 99.5 percent water so when it dries out all those proteins get extremely concentrated and you actually end up with a really glue-like situation where it becomes really quite sticky yeah Yeah. which is why it's particularly uncomfortable if you end up with a dry mouth and that's why i was saying you earlier while we were researching Right. Um, Google dry mouth. Oh, that sounds like a bad idea. It's, it's the worst shit, Seriously? I have ever seen. I would not have expected oh, that. So, have you ever woken up and had like a real? Doesn't look that bad, dude. Have you ever had a dry mouth? Have you ever woken up and had a dry throat? Oh well, yeah, I have. And you can't, you can't get it wet, and it's like painful to breathe and shit.
1: Yeah, but I wouldn't kill myself. Pretty much, all these yeah. stock images are just like people with their tongues, and then it's just like. CGI Sahara Desert in them, and it's like, yeah, we get it. It's a dry mouth.
0: It's so dry.
1: (laughs) It's so dry, bro. It's often the result of dehydration. (laughs) Symptoms include dry lips, dry rest of mouth, (laughs) dry tongue. Anyway,
0: your saliva, when it dries out, the protein's left in your saliva. I assume it's a lot of hydrogen bonds and whatnot like that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, you're left with a glue-like situation, which is why when your lips dry out, they stick together.
1: solid Just blow over your
0: lips, like... They stick. They start sticking to each other.
1: You know what? They do a bit.
0: <sighs> yeah, there we go. That was the thing I thought about last night. Um, right. <laughs> this is something I discovered today. Saliva does it heal wounds.
1: That's a controversial controversial issue. I've heard both it sides. It ain't
0: controversial, man. As far as I can be concerned.
1: I thought it was. Well, there's back. To me, it looks
0: like a Dundee. There's
1: bacteria in it, so no. But also, there's some. I thought there was a lot of. Occasionally, no.
0: There's disinfectants because it contains malsin, LGA, lactoferrin, lysozyme. I know is a bit controversial, mm-hmm. and it contains peroxidase, right? Well, yeah, and it... I think peroxidase is like peroxidase. I but think.
1: it also contains a lot of bacteria as well. Is the thing?
0: It also contains a lot of bacteria. Okay, let me let me back this up with NGF. Keep talking. What does NGF stand for, Sam? NGF stands for nerve growth factor. Okay. Large quantities of ngf is found in mouse saliva and i assume in other salivas but they found it in mouse salivas right and wounds which are dosed with ngf healed twice as fast as wounds which were not dosed with ngf in a study see
1: that's cheeky though because they haven't told us how what the dose of ngf is and it might
0: not be the same dose as was found in the mouse saliva. That's a fair point. I assumed that they'd done the dose with, they said dosed there, didn't they? They're cheeky, cheeky. But it definitely does something. Yeah, it definitely does I, know, something.
1: I, I, know, I know that. that's why I said it was controversial. Because I've heard a lot of people saying, all oh, these disinfectants. But then I've, I, I swear I heard a GP say once, yeah, there are disinfectants. And that means that you get less infections in your mouth. But if you literally just lick your arm, you're just getting all the bacteria on there. And pretty much mostly water on it anyway. That's what I've heard.
0: Okay, here's the thing: it ha- it provides a great benefit because it wipes away physical dirt that's in the. Oh, Okay, fine. Uh,
1: you could. I mean, you could do that with it.
0: Yeah, I guess.
1: I guess. Well done.
0: In the bottom of the Wikipedia page for saliva, it says um, you are recommended to lick your wound if you got dirt and shit in it, and yeah, it's I'll not give you looking that. Looking good and whatnot if you don't have access to clean water. I, animals lick their wounds. It also contains, just just quickly, it also contains a pyrefin, which is a well-known um, painkiller.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: So that feels like there must be some. It's that. clearly
1: designed to help somewhat, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if that's with cuts in the mouth or cuts around the body.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I
1: think the fact that animals have an instinct to lick their wounds has to say something about it.
0: I've got two more saliva facts. Now.
1: Holy shit, this is like a massive... This is just like a saliva exposé.
0: Silk caterpillars, they produce their silk from modified salivary glands. So it was originally a salivary gland, Uh and now now it eventually produces silk. Fantastic. And swifts, which we've got (gasps) a lot to say about swifts. Swifts. Swifts are insane. Some swifts use saliva to stitch together their nests. Yes. Because it's glue-like Yes, and then they get
1: get farmed by people in Thailand, and you make birds' nest soup.
0: Because of their saliva. Yeah, there's
1: a whole industry about people climbing up caves. Like with their with no climbing gear whatsoever, these huge ladders that they bring up and they stand them against like hundred foot caves and they climb up and they collect all these these old swift nests. Sometimes they're still in them. And then they they sell them Uh off for local delicacies like birds' nest soup, which is just bird
0: bird spit soup.
1: But that's they make yeah.
0: One thing I will say is if you're rating a bird out of like how good is it at flying? Which I feel like should be like one of the you know, sure. top vibe qualities for good birds. Sure. Then Swift is Swift is number one in my book. Swift is
1: very good. I think Hummingbird is number one.
0: Uh, they are very, but they they're fucking weird, man.
1: They're fucking weird. Like they
0: they they, they do like a hovering shit where they switch the uh, angle of attack of their wings back and forth. Yeah, in yeah. In a wave like so, sh- it's like a vibrating helicopter. They're like
1: halfway between birds and insects in terms of the flight mechanics. So birds get yeah about pretty much all of their thrust from downstrokes. Insects get about 50 50 from, from downstrokes and upstrokes. And hummingbirds are about 70 25, 70 30 kind of area. Uh-huh. So then they're like in between birds and insects. And then they can. Don't. Well, and eating them on the wing is the fucking coolest shit ever. Oh, sure. Yeah. That's so hard to do.
0: Do they not have like a heartbeat of like 160 beats per oh, minute?
1: Oh, they are so? absolutely. Like, it's like they're on so much cocaine all the time. They are. They're, <laughs> they're, like, if they don't eat sugar for like eight minutes. They are dead. Like, that's
0: that. If I mean, I would be. Okay, Sam, you're going to shit yourself. You're going to shit yourself. I'm going to shit myself. Okay, well, sure. Their heart can beat as fast as 1,260 beats a minute.
1: My oh my.
0: All right, this is it. This is a hummingbird's beat per minute. Each click is an entire stroke of their heart. Christ. How in the. It's actually more than this. They do it faster than this. How in the fucking hell?
1: I, I was, they, were, they were so, so cool. They're so cool. They're, they're like, they're, they have like a metabolic index or something. There's a, there's a way of measuring metabolic index about how much food they are required to take in to maintain. No, it's the ratio between their baseline metabolic rate and their most possible active metabolic rate. And there's a theory that it can't they can't be sustained in animals for very long above seven. And how many birds have it at like occasionally like 15 or something? Um, And they put like they will literally like die if they don't if they don't get consistent consistent levels of food like so like when we were in um when me and ben were were doing our jungle thing we were bored one day so we decided to make a hummingbird feeder and it had gone very well um we'd, we'd found some some pants in the river some old red pants and you're supposed to use red because that attracts hummingbirds so we were like this is great we cut a bottle in half, and we tied the pants on, and we got strings, and we filled it up with sugar water, and we were like, "This is gonna, this, we're gonna smash this." We tied it up against a tree, and one of the guys there said, "Wait, take that down. You can't use that." And we said, "Why?" And they basically said, "You can't use brown sugar because brown sugar, the hummingbirds can't digest it. It forms a mold inside their stomach, and the hummingbirds die." But the main, really? the main, yeah. But actually, the main reason that they die isn't even because of the mold. Right? There's a, a study that says that the mould forms a lot of time after they die. The reason the hummingbirds actually die is because they think they're drinking sugar, but they're not actually drinking good sugar.
0: Oh, so they waste their time on it. So they waste oh their my. time on it to die. <laughs> yeah, It's like thinking, I'm going to eat salads for the next four weeks, and that'll, that'll keep me full. But it
1: all happens in five seconds. It's so cool. It's so good. Oh, it's it's
0: right such cool. a silly creature. What a silly creature, but also amazing. They're doing pretty well.
1: They're doing pretty well. Good diversity. Solid, guys. I like homebirds. A great deal.
0: Anyway, can we just go to my saliva?
1: So, Henry, mosquitoes have killed roughly half the cumulative population of the planet. Of humans? Yes, ever. One in two people that have ever lived have died by mosquitoes.
0: I think I've heard this one before. I think I have.
1: No, 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 you haven't. No, you haven't. Have you got
0: anything more to add to that?
1: Yes, I mean, I have a lot more to add. Depends whether you want me to add it.
0: Yeah, you can
1: add it. One in two, you can add mosquitoes. There are apex predator by far. Like, that's what, I mean, we're at war with mosquitoes essentially, and we have been for our entire existence.
0: Are we there apex? Like No. I feel like I've killed hella mosquitoes in my life. I feel like when, when no. it's me versus mosquito, I am the dominant animal. That's what they want you to think.
1: But they are, they are, at the moment you slap one mosquito, eight more mosquitoes are land on your dick.
0: They're killing me softly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or occasionally, very painfully, with yellow fever. Mm,
0: yeah, they're really good at the, the bio-warfare and fucking Geneva Convention doesn't mean shit to them.
1: No, it doesn't. They can't even read it. <laughs> That's the that's the secret. <laughs> At any given that's, moment, there are a hundred trillion mosquitoes on the planet. Way
0: too many to fucking you know the Nuremberg trials with.
1: Yeah, it's like it's like if we were doing World War One, and then like occasionally there are some mice. It's like you know we don't care. That's what that's what we are to mosquitoes. Like you know we're not even a factor. It's insane. So mosquitoes have also it's their they, and and as you can imagine, they've changed the course of human history dramatically, so dramatically, absurdly. So, for example, really? Are you kidding? Oh my god! I probably every single significant as- aspect of human evolution and every significant historical event has essentially ostensibly been down to mosquitoes.
0: They're the Illuminati. Are they? Yeah, they
1: are. Yeah, slave trade. Let's just pick a random horrible, oh, wow, Jesus. atrocity that is ever that we've fucking done to people. There's that.
0: We're not saying that those people aren't responsible.
1: God no, no, obviously we're not, but. Frankly, if the, the reason that that kind of happened, one of, the, one of the main reasons was because European slaves and European and, and Native American workers were just dying of malaria all the time. So all these people had to go over to other countries and, and enslave entire groups of people, which is obviously fucking disgusting. But that's, that, that's because they had natural immunities to malaria. So they had to go to these tropical wow. areas. That also, I mean, I, I could literally keep going. The American Civil War probably took as long as it did because of mosquitoes. The Nazis, they flooded mar- marshes outside Pontine um, they, in order to bring back malaria-born mosquitoes, which killed hundreds of thousands in Italy. There's, right. uh, I mean, a huge port—one of the reasons that colonialism— from from uh from what well, from the English perspective, one of the reasons that the British Empire expanded so quickly was because that was when quinine became available, and before that, every colonial effort was just completely failing. Uh, but once once wow. quinine became available, immediately we started get, having an advantage over over other people, mosquitoes. Over mosquitoes, essentially, yeah. Every, I mean,
0: once quinine and quinine tonic water, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, even though quinine's pretty, I mean, it's good, but it's pretty crap as a as an ind- individual case. Overall you have you know you have people surviving because of it and that's where it eventually gives you
0: like some liver problems
1: yeah no eventually but that's better than 95 percent of your army being wiped out
0: yeah that's pretty good like
1: when it, the thing with history is that we get really excited about you know sergeant james the great or you know all these people <laughs> and we think that they're the reason that these things happened but they're not they never people in hugely over inflate the significance of these individual events or people—it's all just because of, in the end, dry statistics about how immune we were to the mosquitoes in the area, and that basically explains the conflict. Every conflict
0: of—are you saying that everything that has ever happened in the face of human <laughs> conflict is down to mosquitoes? I, I'm saying I have devoted hundreds of hours to history podcasts.
1: Yeah, more more I or less. Enjoyed on the large scale of things. You can pretty pretty effectively explain a large number of of the outcomes of essentially any conflict or essentially any event in in terms of mosquitoes. You can explain how it affected mosquitoes and how that later came back to bite us on the ass quite literally. You could you could explain it in terms of you know about how we we wiped out people with smallpox smallpox or or wiped out people in the pre Columbian era when we we actually brought malaria to the Americas. Um, when people went over to jamestown so people who came over on the may on the mayflower and set up colonies a lot of times boats would come to to try and set up new colonies after that original colony in jamestown and once they got there people would would say on the people people who were living there would say oh yeah the boat that brought us over one in ten people are alive and then people who just come on the boat would be like oh okay and then they just they just wouldn't get off and they just stay and go back to england <laughs> That's cool. Like, everybody died. Literally everybody died. Like, you know, one in two people who have ever died, died because of mosquitoes. And that... One in two people. I mean, that's a lot of killing. I mean, it's it's absolutely absurd. And even now, they're the leading cause of death on the planet, obviously.
0: I mean, that is just... If you sit with that for a second, it just... Like, 9-11? Okay, maybe, maybe not 9-11. I'll give you a pass on that one. We just stay clear of anything too... Controversial. That was
1: I mean let, yeah, I mean that's pretty obvious that was Reagan, but <laughs> everything else is down to mosquitoes, okay? Autism. Especially if it was before the eighteen hundreds. Maybe not, maybe not, I don't know. I don't know. Sickle cell sickle cell anemia is certainly down to mosquitoes. Sickle the reason the reason we the reason people still have sickle cell anemia is because it stops you getting malaria. So it's kind of good, even though it means you probably die.
0: Really? Oh, my God. Like, it,
1: that's, it's been a, it evolved in, in Africa as a way to combat malaria. People with sickle cell don't get malaria. So you probably... See. I
0: mean, if you want a reason for why God doesn't exist... <laughs> it's mosquitoes.
1: <laughs> it's mosquitoes. And it quite, it's quite something, isn't it? And up until the late 19th century, we didn't even know... We thought mosquito-borne diseases were caused by the miasma theory, which is basically just bad smells. One in two people were dying to something that we thought was <laughs> bad smells. The
0: greatest bamboozle. <laughs> yes. Well, <that> great. <laughs> there were people literally dying and they're like did you smell anything bad oh what's that on your shoulder right there oh don't worry about it it's A mosquito bite i smelled something really bad the other day. what do you think is the number of kills that the like how many kills ranked kills do you think a single mosquito has accrued over its lifetime that's
1: interesting because i'm pretty sure mosquitoes don't live very long and i'm pretty sure their main strategy is let make a lot of tiny squiggly babies in water and then wait for them to go in because I mean they they need human blood to incubate their eggs I think to keep them warm so they need
0: they live the females live 50 days see that's not long is it that's quite the males only live 10 days which is a bit shaky the
1: thing is a lot of the time you just get swatted don't you <laughs> dude
0: it would take you between 200,000 and 2 million mosquito bites to kill you from blood loss I bet it's happened 2 million mosquito bites <laughs>
1: there was a baby um caribou baby reindeer they got sucked dry.
0: Thing is, that means you can rank up like a hundred thousand mosquito bites and still be alive. <laughs> That's true, actually. you just be really thin. It's like <laughs> this question: How many mosquito bites can you get in a day? There is no limit to the number of mosquito bites.
1: Just enjoy. Just get out there and enjoy.
0: It can just keep biting you.
1: Yeah, unless it
0: dies. What mosquito syndrome? Oh, uh... you have a strong yeah, reaction like to a mosquito bite. How many mosquito eggs can it lay in a day? 100 eggs a time. Let me just do the calculation here. A mosquito, if it, as soon as it finished biting, for the mean bite time, immediately started biting someone else. Which is unrealistic, but sure. right? Which is unrealistic. It had no flying time in between. The maximum average rough time Do you want to know how many people it could kill in this life? Yeah, sure. One singular mosquito. 17,640 individual people. So if
1: you're like a sort of you know, ranked game mosquito, like a, a pro level
0: esports mosquito,
1: you can uh-huh. rank seventeen k kills.
0: Right. Let's say it spends two thirds of its time flying around. I think this is this is
1: real back of envelope shit. I'm going to be honest, but I like it.
0: Okay. Let's say it spends let's say it spends five six of its how how much time do you think it spends flying around versus how much time do you think it bites?
1: I think it will bite. What it will find a, ma- a nice juicy mammal and will bite it once every few
0: hours. Once every few hours. In a lifetime, if it doesn't get swatted, it could bite 300 people. Sure. That's my realistic approximation. That
1: seems, yeah, I reckon that's not too tough.
0: And I reckon there is a mosquito that has existed in the past, which has killed 300 individuals.
1: Yeah, I mean, if they're infected with Plasmodia, then then I guess they'll be passing it on to everyone they infect, right?
0: Well, there it is. A mosquito has killed 300 individuals. Oh, shit. There's also interesting stuff about. So they've got six needle-like mouth organs. Yep. Then it finds a blood vessel. And it knows exactly where to find blood vessels. There's so
1: much cool mosquitoes. There's about the, how they're trying to treat it now. They have the vaccine that you know the Bill Gates vaccine or whatever that, that they've started going for. And it's a good vaccine. It's about like seventy seventy seven percent effective, which is which is above the the WHO goal of seventy five percent. But it needs three doses to work. So distribution is a really big problem.
0: Demonstrate a key component of, mos- of mosquitoes olfactory system is to detect veins on their victim. They can smell veins. Yeah,
1: they smell carbon dioxide. It's like leeches, sort of. So they also smell human breath.
0: Wait, wait. Previous studies demonstrated due to the emissions of octanol. That's it. And carbon dioxide sensory hairs with the tip of them the mosquitoes piercing and sucking. These has housed olfactory neurons that express two conventional olfactory receptors. Volatile compounds present in bloods, proving that these receptors were critical in allowing mosquitoes to locate veins by inhibiting the gene expression of these AOARs through RNA interference, scientists crippled mosquitoes' efficiencies and delayed their blood feeding, which took them about 15 minutes to feed, whereas normally mosquitoes would feed within 30 seconds. They're fucking amazing at doing this, Sam. They're too good.
1: It's, not, it's no contest. It's not even funny.
0: I think it, dude, I think there's billions of mosquitoes out there who've got at least 300 confirmed kills in their lifetime. Wouldn't surprise me.
1: I mean, each of those are having hundreds and hundreds of babies.
0: Yeah. Serial killers have done fuck all.
1: And it, it would be great if they could, like, if you could know which ones were the most vicious.
0: It says in the top 550 confirmed kills.
1: And then, it, and then it bites you and flies away, and it's just like, 551. you're
0: like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I am a dominant animal.
1: Take it away. So, this fat was given to me by...
0: Your girlfriend.
1: Yes. Yes, my girlfriend. Gave me this fact, and, and she asked to be credited. And I think that's entirely fair. So, um, yeah, thank you. This, this, the one goes out to her. So, I'm going to start by saying the kicker that if you own a cat or if you own cats, you're more likely to get into a motorcycle accident. Quite significantly more likely, actually.
0: What's the what's the what's the percentage?
1: Uh, I mean, the different studies say different things, but generally, you're more prone to risk-taking behavior as well. So one study did a a survey, a bunch of students and ones that were taking business majors or would describe themselves as more risk taking people or who would not uh, put like fear of failure as something that would limit them from doing something. These people were twice or three times as likely to to own cats. Is that coincidence? No, no, it is not. I mean, pretty sure it's not. Is this the
0: kicker? It's not. coincidence. Right.
1: So, Henry, I'm going to start from the beginning. Okay. Cats harbour a parasite called Toxoplasma gondii. This parasite lives most of its life cycle inside cats. It can only breed in the reproductive system of cats, but it spends a lot of time being passed between rodents and cats. Right. uh, Because they spend a lot of time together. So once it gets in a rodent, this parasite is like, okay, this is nice, but I want to be in a cat so I can reproduce. So what it does is it parasitically manipulates the rodent to be slightly less scared of cats, so it's more likely to get in by cats, and therefore it's more likely to get back into a cat. Okay. So it can reproduce and then continue
0: the cycle. That's like top-tier symbiosis, isn't it? I
1: mean, it's not really symbiosis because I guess... The thing is, people often frame this wrong, I think. People frame this in terms of it's good for the cat because the cat's doing this to things so it can get rodents. The cat doesn't really care. I mean, it's good for the cat indirectly. I mean, I guess you could argue that the cats only harbour the parasite because it brings this secondary benefit for them but yeah multiple studies have shown that rodents are much more likely to spend time out and about much more likely to spend time foraging much less likely to be averse to cat odors all these kinds of things are much riskier essentially if you're a parasite and you're going to be infecting a mammalian nervous system there's no reason for it to just to infect one mammal and not the other at least that's what this one paper is arguing saying that this almost certainly happens to a certain extent in humans just to connect it back to the motorcycle thing which i guess you already figured out by now the main idea is that humans who own cats also take this parasite in. Between 11 and 60% of people have this parasite, depending on where you live. Wow. Mostly it's asymptomatic, so you don't notice you have it. It's mostly transmitted in cat feces, so people do tend to get it when they own a lot of cats. Another cool thing I like about this, people take more risk behaviours in multiple areas of life, blah, blah, blah. But also that applies to buying another cat, Right. I mean, that's a financial risk to a certain extent. And that's supposed to explain theoretically why you get old women with 50 cats. Right. And you you don't get old women with 50 dogs because once you've bought like five cats, you're so... Stacked to the gills with Toxoplasma gondii, that you're mar- you're like, yeah, let's get ten more cats. What could go wrong? Wait, so the
0: bacteria is making you more inclined to get more cats indirectly through risk-taking behavior. Yeah. Can you drop some science that can dissociate this from a myth, please?
1: I'm going to drop some hard science right in you. First of all, they have found orthologs of tyrosine hydroxylase in Toxoplasma gondii, Henry. Okay. Tyrosine. Ty- tyrosine hydroxylase. hydroxylase. Okay. I'm explaining why that's quite relevant. Dopamine is probably one of the most you know, well-known, at least, neurotransmitters yeah. out there. It's made in the brain, and it's synthesized in two steps from its precursor, and its precursor is tyrosine. It's amino acid. Step one, you make tyrosine into something called L-dopa. Step two, you make L-dopa into dopamine, and tyrosine hydroxylase is used in step one. Right. So it's an enzyme that we make ourselves. And it's been proven that people who've been infected with T. Gondi, because they have this ortholog of tyrosine hydroxylase in their brain from the infection, because they have this enzyme that this parasite is making for them, they're making more of the intermediate and therefore making more dopamine. So the parasite essentially boosts their dopamine, so they're making more dopamine. Dopamine is associated with activity and movement a lot of the time. Uh, It can affect sleep schedules and stuff like that. That's a very general mechanism for how infection by this parasite can lead to increased activity. I mean, most of the time, risk-taking behaviour manifests itself in being more out in the open, being less averse to things, which is essentially activity. Um, so so that's that's the main mechanism that's been seen. And there's a second mechanism, which has been proven certainly in rats and um, to a certain extent in humans, which is to do with testosterone.
0: Right. And
1: this is specifically, specifically in men. Quite important to say where this parasite goes. This parasite generally likes to hang around the cns
0: the central nervous system yes brain
1: spine that's where it hangs out definitely seems to suggest that it's probably going to affect what you're doing or your behavior in some way right also eyes so cns eyes and testes now there are one reason for this is yeah that you don't tend to have a lot of immune cells near those areas so it's quite a safe place to be if you're a parasite to be honest but another reason why they want to be near the testes specifically is in the testes, producing a bit more testosterone. You upregulate your testosterone production in your testes. And this is really cool for a couple of reasons. So first of all, in rats, it it increases the rat's sex drive. So it makes them more likely to take risks. Right it would be more likely to, you know, allow them to mate over the the possibility that they could be eaten. So they'd be more likely to go looking for mates, even when the normal rat would be averse to do that for its own safety. These rats are running around in the open, looking for females, not caring the world because of how much testosterone they have. Right. So that's one aspect of it, and they also they've also been proven to stay in this area of the brain called the amygdala, the medial amygdala, uh-huh. and that is one of the parts of the brain associated with sexual desire. So with the rats, what happens is you produce lots of extra testosterone because of the parasites that goes up into your brain, to your medial amygdala, and your medial amygdala is more stimulated than normal because of all this testosterone. And then the parasite that's also in your medial amygdala, it's preventing DNA methylation of promoters. So essentially what that means is it's increasing the number of promoters you have for something called norepinephrine, for the production of norepinephrine um, or arginine norepinephrine. And that's what you produce from the amygdala. That's the chemical that tells you you want to have sexual desire, in this case, in that, in that particular area of the brain. So not only is it producing more testosterone, but the place where the testosterone has its effect, it's increasing the effect it has there because it's for, for any given amount of testosterone, you're producing more norepinephrine.
0: Right, so are cat women more horny?
1: That's, see, that is the fundamental root of the question, isn't it? Are cat women more horny? Are men with cats more sexy? And I like to think... No, men with cats are not more sexy, because I mean, it'd be in my interest to do so. Um, I, I, I think, I think in humans that hasn't really been investigated. To be honest, I mean, I guess there's, there's probably some research to be done, but I think the thing with human behaviour is it's a bit too well risk taking behaviour. You could look at parachuting, or you could look at financial decisions, or you could look at insurance kind of very very difficult to measure risk taking in humans objectively that that's why a lot of these papers have resorted to saying stuff like people with cats have raised risk of schizophrenia or raised risk of ocd or stuff like that because that's also associated with increased dopamine and to be honest i wasn't really going to comment on this because there's a lot of people saying definitely people you're going to get schizophrenia if you have cats and a lot of people say it's a complete myth and the research lies somewhere in between Generally, you're probably not going to get schizophrenia if you have a cat. That's that's likely.
0: Okay, wait. So statistically, you're more likely to own a cat if you're schizophrenic. But you're not more likely to be schizophrenic if you if you start owning.
1: You know, no. It's it's more like if you're schizophrenic or you're not schizophrenic, are you more likely to own a cat? So that's one of the pieces of data they've used. Schizophrenic people are more likely to own a cat, implying that the cat has made them schizophrenic, <laughs> basically.
0: What is the percentage increase in dopamine when having this 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 parasite? What is the percentage mo- likelihood that you're going to kill yourself on a motorcycle because you have a cat? Like, is it one percent or is it twenty percent? If it's twenty percent, then this is interesting. If it's one percent, oh, it's not one percent. It's not one you know. percent.
1: So uh, the, the 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 motorcycle data is about two to- roughly two times as likely to die from a motorcycle crash. That's significant. Given that you own a motorcycle, given that you own a cat, and the thing is, it, getting to the data is quite weird on this because most of these are just like studies of high school campuses or whatever with fifteen hundred people, and that's when you get things like three times more likely to be an entrepreneur or whatever. The thing with the dopamine, you can't really get stats with that because you can't really get you can't really get a quantify about dopamine production.
0: It's more about discovering a pathway where it could happen. I mean, do- yeah, and How do you quantify different- dopamine production in a person who's died in a motorcycle accident?
1: Yeah, or, a person, or even a person who's alive, it's kind of hard to tell. And dopamine in different areas acts differently. So that's not the kind of thing you can get data on, really. But in rats, in, it, it, one of the reasons I like this is because there's a lot of good research in rats. It's very easy to measure risk-taking behavior, very strong evolutionary incentive. Essentially, uh-huh. the jury's out. Rats are more likely to be eaten by cats if they are around
0: cats because of the parasite. If the parasite gets into you, then it's going to have some effect, is what it's saying. Yeah,
1: and the idea is, some evidence suggests that humans do similar behaviours. There's no reason why they wouldn't, and the mechanisms uh-huh. there, but measuring that is always going to be difficult because of so, because of environmental factors.
0: And there's interestingly a statistically large increase in the chance that you're going to kill yourself in a motorcycle accident if you have a cat, despite the places where the data is coming from is not entirely a controlled situation.
1: Exactly. And an exa- example of, with a problem with this, for example, is, is with the schizophrenia data. If you're schizophrenic, you're often more likely to be socially isolated, which means you might, you might be quite likely to buy a cat because you're lonely. You know, maybe that explains it. It's really hard for these things because society gets in the way.
0: It's one of those interesting situations in, in psychological, biological you know, chemistry, science, right, that area, where it's psychology, bio, biology, and, and chemistry meet. And at that cross-section, the data becomes no longer quantitative, and it starts becoming really qualitative, and then you can't really make strong arguments in a scientific way, so it ends up being lots of articles and interesting stats that aren't exactly 100% true.
1: Yeah, this is this is the one where I, what I told you about, where I sort of lost a little confidence
0: in what I was saying as I researched it. Right. So let's conclude with you are twice as likely to die on a motorcycle accident according to this study if you own a cat because of a bacteria that gets into your brain from parasite, the cat's I shit. Think it's bacteria. A parasite that gets into your brain because of the cat's shit. Yeah. Right? Yes. That's a good fact. Yeah. Statistically though, might not be foolproof, but there's definitely something to it. It's certainly foolproof in rats. There you go. When suddenly, there was there a knock was at the door.
2: Right, what's that? Hiya. recording. Have you got that? Well, I ate before I started. Remember well, I told you? Hilaire Belloc, Luke. What do you want? The Hilaire Belloc, Luke. Hilaire Belloc, Luke. Hilaire Belloc. Belloc. Yeah. What's yeah. that about? Oh. What, what, what does it look like? It's like an old Italian, like, it's like a folio society book, but it's the one that has got those. Remember the poems about the boy who wouldn't hold the hand of his nurse when he went to the zoo, but he was um, Ryan? Caution
0: Costume tales.
2: Costume
0: tales. That's what you want. Yeah. You can ask Sam if he's got costume tales. Sam's yeah.
2: here. Hi Sam. Hi Sam. Costume tales by Helier Belloc.
0: Do you know what we were just talking about? We were the podcast. You're you twice as likely to die in a motorcycle
2: accident if you're in a cat. Because like... cats have a oh. parasite, which is in their poo as well as their reproductive organs. Toxoplasma. There's toxoplasma. a very fascinating thing about Toxoplasma That's in probably cats what we just discussed. and rats. That's what we just discussed. So there, there's a bunch of cat women can't sneak anything past my Who are probably contaminated with this. Who have a sort of a downregulation of their abhorrence of the stench of cats and rats. Because you get toxoplasma in your brain, and uh, it's—I mean, I know a lot about it because we see people with toxoplasma in their brain, um, and it's I mean its not a good look. I didn't see. Not a good look, but it's quite interesting. The 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 psychological manipulation that this virus does on your brain, thinking things that would otherwise be totally intolerable are quite tolerable. So you don't so. And interestingly, thing happens to people slightly worryingly, uh so you could make the argument some do um about the um tolerance of cat women, so perhaps single women who um have a number of cats, you'll very often think, "My goodness, there's a lot of cat wee pee smell around here that they seem to be tolerating." When, in fact, anybody ordinary would think, that's totally abhorrent, I can't tolerate that. But that whole ghastly scenario was tolerated by them because they're probably contaminated to an extent by toxic
0: plasma. I don't I don't do, you see. See. do you know what you said? What did you say? Well, it was all about risk-taking and whatnot. Mm. It makes the rats be less worried about being eaten by cats. Yeah. Which means that more Toxoplasma that goes into the rats can get into a cat eventually, yeah. which is why the bacteria does it. Um, but it, what it does is it, it basically means that the rats become less worried about taking risks, uh-huh. and then when it gets into humans, humans become less worried about taking risks, and so you're twice as likely to die in a motorcycle accident if you own cats. Yeah, so I mean, I, yeah, i
2: would th- i i I'm totally buy into that. I mean, there's very good evidence about the behavioural modification of Toxoplasma in terms of rats and cats, and Mm-hmm. So I buy all that. Anyway, I shall leave you because I can't find Pelly Belloc. Anyway, nice to speak to you, Sam.
1: Yeah, Bert Henry's mom is always is always crucial for a good podcast. I think. There's a bird right. in Africa, right. and it's called a honey guide. Honey guide. Yeah called a honey guide. Well, there's a bunch of them called honey guides, but there's one I want to talk about called the greater honey guide. Right? Okay. Exciting. And its Latin name is Indicator Indicator. Are you on the edge of your seat, Henry? No. Right, okay. Second. Indicator Indicator, <laughs> you'll see why well, that's cool in a bit. So, this is probably one of the only animals that has been proven to have a mutualistic relationship with humans. That and i, I a mutual relationship mutualistic relationship yeah and i say that i mean there are probably others that are kind of like it and some with little bugs or mites or whatever but this is like a proper a burden a human their lives are made better by each other and their friends okay okay so what what this is in reference to is these people who live in northern tanzania called the Hadza people and these people essentially a huge part of their diet is made up of honey uh, fifteen percent uh, at certain points of the year, and they are honey hunter gatherers basically. Um, they, they obviously they eat a lot of meat, but honey is a really good source of calories at, at certain uh, at certain times when there's not a lot of animals around. And what what tends to happen is when these hunter gatherers go out into the wild uh to look for honey, they'll make this vocalization, they'll make this call, and when they make this call, a bird will come. It will come to their area and it will start making another call. In response to them, right? And this bird will sort of flitter around. It will go deep into the forest and these hunters will follow the bird. And after a while, the bird will stop moving around. It will sit at a tree and it will start making this call going completely crazy. The hunters will look around and there'll be a bird. There'll be a, sorry, there'll be a, um, there'll be a bee's nest. There'll be a bee's nest in the tree. And they
0: can get honey from that. They
1: can get honey from that. What's happened? So, the honey guide has led them to beehives. <laughs> That's why it's called the honey guide.
0: What does the, the honey guide get out of
1: it? Okay, so this probably evolved roughly two million years ago more or less with the human ancestor homo erectus right that's that's right. that's what they, they think and the thing is back then it was very likely that homo erectus did what most chimpanzees or or you know other primates would do which is essentially bash the hell out of the nest eat a lot of the honey and then run the hell away when the bees start killing them right that's generally what they did and at that point so chad yeah, yeah, it is. It is. By any definition. Um, and, and at that point the birds would be like, great, they're gone. I will eat the honey. And the honey guides go around and they feed on wax, beeswax the, 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 you know, the honey in the, in the in the hive. They can't get the honey in the hive. They're little birds. Once it's cracked open and the bees are all gone chasing all these people, great, free honey. So, strong incentive for the birds to eat all this honey. And yeah. there's a particular kind of bird called Apis melagina or something, which is huge and stingy and angry and essentially is by far the most common common bee in the area and uh, this is really what they're targeting however right as humans got much smarter they sort of realized they could manipulate these birds and take advantage of their relationship and essentially what they do now is is in most depictions of this relationship it's like ah uh, the humans give some honey to the birds so they both win but actually what the hans tend to do is they tend to bury the nest or they tend to burn it, or they tend to hide it. So the bird can't eat it, and therefore it's more hungry. And in the long run, it's more likely to guide them towards more honey. Wow. So
0: So why doesn't the bird just go and get honey? Because it needs the human to crack it
1: open. The birds can't get into the honey nest, not properly. Uh, So what what people tend to think happen is that when the people started originally were bashing open the nests... Then it was pretty much you birds know, came to get some. The birds covered, came to get day. some, and the bees gathering away. When they when they discovered fire, though, and they started smoking bees out of the nests, then the humans were able to essentially have the whole nest to themselves. And that's when they started the behavior of hiding the hiding the the nests and not giving any to the birds. So I'd say for the last few thousand years, the birds have not been getting much out of this interaction. <laughs> They're sort of being cheated. <laughs> they they like guide people to to their to the honey out of instinct. Often they'll come into the village screaming about a, a bee's nest and then people will follow them. Like, you know, it's usually it's like an important part of, of, of the bird's behavior. And then often they're not yeah. getting any honey, but it's still just so ingrained in them after this period of time. And they still there. And some of the stats on this, right, are insane. I'm about to I'm about to dump stats on you. So when Great. the humans do the initial call, the 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 chances of them attracting a honey guide are about two thirds, which is ridiculous. Jeez. So then, this and then this honey guy, Once this honey guy guides them to the area,
0: but what is the call?
1: It's like a sort of. I I'm not going to imitate it, but it's like a sort of loud whistling thing. Well, but I don't. I doubt there'll be any videos of it. No, this is oh, this is the call of the bird, but um, it's raised it from a third chance to two thirds chance. Wait, can you hear it?
0: Yeah, that's it.
1: There you go. Right, lovely. Well, that that's the sound that the honey guides make when they want to lead people to honey which is uh-huh. pretty cool. So again, it's two thirds chance that they will find a honey guide that can take them to the nest after they make this call. The once they And in general, right. having this bird around essentially increases their honey, the success of their, their honey hunting by 560%. So they essentially quintuple the amount of honey they can get. And it's been estimated that around 8 to 10% of all the calories these people take in across their lives can be put down to the honey guides, so roughly a tenth of all the wow. all the calories they take in is due to their mutualist, which is ridiculous. I mean, that's that's so impressive.
0: Right. So going back to it, in a rare case of specific communication between hum- humans and wild animals, the Yao people of Mozambique have a special call for attracting the greater honey guides, So you say brr, but you roll all the r's, so it goes brr. I think that's what you think that's is. it. Right. Okay. So I think
1: if he went out, you go. This, this is the Yao people. Cool. That's a different one. The Hadza—they'll do something. There's,
0: they'll, they'll have there's a, a number of communities. It, yeah, there's a number that. of
1: communities that do it, um, but they don't use the same call. Cool. I I've just found a paper on the Hadza, which is uh, I imagine a different community. But there's loads right. of them. There's loads of them. Oh my god, it's a very real research phenomenon. And um, there's a lot of a lot of people saying that it happens in honey badgers as well. And that honey badgers and honey guides, but really? uh, I I don't think that's true. Uh, uh, most papers these days say that most instances are probably
0: well. They might just be that honey badgers. Honey badgers get honey, right?
1: Yeah, I mean they probably they they,
0: and they crack their beehives, beehives. Right, they're pretty tough tough guys. Right. So then honey guides will just get some of that honey if there's left. Yeah, away, exactly. Right? I mean, I... and then it's very easy to string that into a story of symbols. Yeah when it's just scavenging. Yeah, it's
1: been... It's been the, the videos of Honey Badger, Honey Guy, Mutualism have, have been accused of, of staging. So, yeah, there's not much you can do. Yeah, but, yeah, I, I mean, essentially, we've evolved alongside this bird's indicator-indicator um, since, we since we existed, and we can literally communicate with them, and they make up about a tenth of the calories of the people who live in the area. And the birds, on the other hand, get pretty much nothing just uh, a side note, they they, they have similar they're cut to parasites, that they have similar behavior to cuckoos. So that, that they steal other birds' nests and stuff. Oh nice. It's quite cool. Two, four, six, eight. How do we communicate? Short vocalizations based off the rolling of our R's. And then we get honey. periods Oh awesome. I think is this the I think I have a. I have a th- well All right, go for it.
0: You have some things to say about periods? No, and-
1: I just have are you going to do the um annoying effect thing where it's like do they go in sync or do they not go in sync and all these fancy scientists say they do go in sync and all these other fancy scientists
0: say they don't go in sync. What do you mean by that? Wait, just give me this for a second. This is not what I'm talking. There's about.
1: a there's a special effect where there's been this huge debate for like a million years. I have no idea what's right or not. Basically, there's been all these studies about whether women who cohabit for long periods of time, get their menstrual cycle in sync. And there's a lot. Uh, no
0: one knows where the answer Essentially, is. Essentially.
1: I was pretty sure it was a myth for a long time, but then Robert Sapolsky came on the scene, Henry, <laughs> you know, me and Robert Sapolsky, oh, and Robert shit. Sapolsky seemed pretty sure it was real. And then I looked at some papers and I, most of them were pretty sure it was real. Then some other papers, oh, and some of them, I'm pretty sure it wasn't real. And I'm, I've, have never actually been completely split on a biological mm. debate before. But I'm honestly completely split. I don't know who to believe. I'll believe the last. Exactly. I'll believe whoever I'm talking to at the time. Okay, that's not
0: that's not what, that's I'm, not doing. what I'm doing. I'm talking about what are you doing, Sam? Yeah. Yep. If you think about it, I want you to really think about mm. it. Name another animal that isn't a human that you know has a period.
1: Chimpanzees. Uh, they must have they must have periods, they must have periods,
0: yeah, they do have a period, right, right. here's the thing. most animals don't have periods, and quite a lot of mammals uh-huh. instead of having a period, they just reabsorb the uterus lining.
1: I did know that I didn't know which ones though okay, so, so it,
0: it is let me just say it is elephant shrews, mm-hmm. some bats, and some primates, yes, that's it, oh. The rest of mammals will mostly uh, most mammals will reabsorb their uterus lining. And then obviously in non mammals, you end up with weird cases such as chickens with eggs. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. And you can also end up with like reptiles have got stuff. And there's, there's loads of different cases. Um, rabbits have shock ovulation sounds fun apparently where the ovary only releases an egg when it's shocked with a male's penis which has a spike on the end
1: oh my god
0: do you know how have you seen a chicken's um like their egg making uh tube i gotta be honest henry as it produces a perfectly formed egg right right ovary lots of yolks on it yellow yolks right yolk goes into the tube Squirts it along with some egg <laughs> Sorry, oil, which I the egg. up. The, the yolk goes into
1: the infundibulum, I think you'll find.
0: Yeah, the infundibulum. And then it goes along the magnum to the isthmus. <sighs> and then it goes into the shell gland slash Right, yes. So there's this like ball area inside the chicken where it coats it in a layer of, uh, I guess, calcium carbonate. Yeah. And then after it gets fully coated in a layer of calcium carbonate, which is, I suppose, one millimetre thick or something like mm-hmm. that, it decides a thickness. And then it just squeezes it out.
1: That's pretty sick.
0: I think that's sick that it can coat a, like a, a liquidy yolk in a layer of calcium carbonate. I
1: mean, did you think they just ho- stored whole shells inside them
0: and then just slipped an egg? Well, in? it's one of those things. It's like, you can't really imagine how it's done. You're like, how the fuck does a chicken produce an egg? I guess. Well, there it is. It's got a it's got a ball-like organ inside of it, which coats a yolk in a shell. Hmm.
1: No, I, I guess that, that, that is quite awesome. weird to think about. And then I guess it comes straight out of the cloaca and onto breakfast plates.
0: All around the world, yeah. Well, it's in this diagram. It, it labels it the vent, the vent.
1: Yeah, I guess that's the cloacal vent.
0: The problem with googling this is it's 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 really hard to google this shit because you keep getting fucking medicine stuff. Oh yeah, bloody someone who's having ovulation. Bloody problems. human women with ovulation problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't get a single paper about rabbits. So I've actually not got that much. Right. No one's talking okay, so about why, rabbit ovulation. Okay, why do we have periods and why don't we just reabsorb our uterus lining, Sam? What do you think?
1: See, so, I was being wondering that. I have absolutely no idea. It seems like a,
0: a right nightmare, having periods. So It's super easy to explain, as are most of my facts, but you know, it's, it's still good to know.
1: Why elephant shrews? That's what's fucking with me. Humans...
0: Require thick uteruses and placentas in order to support a baby, and when the egg comes down, it has to embed itself in a thick placental wall, whereas most other mammals will do not have this thick percent thick wall right what thick uterine wall whatever right, and that means that um it's too right, much yep. to reabsorb, and so every twenty eight days when your body needs to get rid of it because it's not fertilized, it goes. Well shit, where's it going to go, and let 's just flush it out right mm-hmm. and the thing is, is there's like there's no evolutionary pressure for it to be that method other than Ooh. there's no other place for it to go
1: okay, so it's just because you need a thicker wall in general
0: if Yeah, a... so we need a thicker wall in order to have the baby right but
1: why why is it because babies are bigger relative to the mothers
0: thing is okay, one thing I can tell you, Sam, yep, some papers said that uh we have thicker, we have abnormally thick uterine wall linings for animals that are our size. Okay. So you can get animals that, let's say, a lion. I don't know, that could be our size, right? wait. Well, all right, right, calm down. Cool. <laughs> Speak for yourself. A deer, <laughs> fine. I don't know what, what weighs our size, but it's like not related to us. Our... What, what, what is our size, Sam? How much does a deer weigh? If a deer weighs seventy kilos, I'm gonna fucking catch it's, it. It's
1: gotta yeah. be a small deer, surely. It weighs. I feel like it's like, that, I mean, that's a big deer, white-tailed deer. Oh, look at that. It's 400 kilograms. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that bullshit. That <laughs> bullshit. I see fucking tiny. How heavy is a deer? 68 kilos.
1: Hey, that's not fair. You just chose a small deer.
0: How heavy is the biggest deer? It says 431 pounds. Is that not like uh, 150 hundred? That's just kilos. another white-tailed deer.
1: These are all Americans. Hey, that's not the biggest deer ever.
0: 195 kg. <laughs> They're not Whatever. They are relative. they're quite similar to humans in weight. Yeah, sure. Like sure. Uh, an
1: adolescent small deer, a diker. Yeah, yeah. So dinker.
0: deers deers have thin uterus linings, I bet you they do.
1: Well, right. I bet they do. I bet they do. It certainly is. Is it something to do with our, like, the fact that we have massive heads or something? That's supposed to be, isn't that, that's supposed Ooh. to be the reason that pay- birth is so painful and stuff, isn't it? Because we evolved, our heads grew exp- exponentially, essentially, in the last few.
0: This is a question I should ask my. Oh, your mom,
1: your mom will be able to deliver two
0: to three hours of podcast content. Mama, you've come right on cue. She's come on cue with, right, mum, I have a question. Not many animals have periods, right? Yeah. and they're sort of weirdly spaced out which animals do have periods, can you hear her? It's all good. Or you might have to talk loudly, right? I wanted to ask, the reason that we have periods is because we need to flush it out um every 28 days, and it's too thick to be reabsorbed. So most mammals will reabsorb their uterus lining at the end of the, the, the menstrual cycle, right? Because they've got thin uterus lining. My question was, why do... Some animals, which are roughly the same size as humans, have thin uterus linings. Or rather, why do humans have such thick uterus linings for our body size?
2: I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I sort of feel it should be something to do with nutritional requirements. Two things. Nutritional requirements of a human fetus, because actually in terms of the energy that needs to go into them and placentation, mm. Um, they probably require more for their rate of growth uh, than others do and also I suppose we're vertical does that make a difference I mm. don't know am not entirely sure actually I mean there's no question that in mid-cycle dogs and other animals do bleed but they usually have they usually have middle schmitz which is like mid-cycle bleeding um, rather than Menstruation. Don't really know the answer to that, to be honest.
0: It was at this point that we showed my mum the chicken's reproductive tract. So there's an organ inside the chicken. What was your reaction to that?
2: Yeah. So uh, the the word infundibulum, um, and I, I the, the 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 ability to to create an environment that calcifies is really quite spectacular because the mechanics of that in terms of you know the alignment that there is with bone production with osteoclasts and osteoblasts, um, which is how you produce calcification in um osteo- you know hydroxyapatite bone matrix is actually quite similar but it's really interesting how they do that because they can so they, they create this you know calcium microenvironment where where they're able to seed um calcium Phosphate hydroxyapatite on the outside of shells, on the outside of the egg. I mean, it's pretty amazing, really, because we spend our life in human medicine trying to not have that happen anywhere other than bone. And there's lots of, um, examples of it happening in, um, a maladaptive way so that you get, um, calcification in the wrong place. I saw in
0: the Hunterian Museum in Glasgow, Guinea, you know, they would have malaligned femurs where they've not realigned the, because mm-hmm. you break your leg or something, and they don't realign the bones correctly, and then the bone creates a whole huge mass. Yeah. It's like a huge deformed mass of bone that forms in, in really wild shapes around the bone to connect two broken pieces.
2: Mm. But the interesting thing is if you fail to align bone when it's healing, then it does a really clever thing, because essentially um, bone osteoblasts which create new bone and calcify um, the kind of essential um, uh, connective tissue Um, it does it along mechanical stress lines so there's a signal uh, down the vertical axis of mechanical stress line that um, creates a sort of um, neuronal signal that um, stimulates osteoblasts to dump the calcium and the phosphate that they have at um, a bone creation stress line in order that they most efficiently produce uh, bone that is mechanically functional. Amazing! So the osteoclasts sit at the bone mineralization border and resorb bone, and the osteoblasts um, respond to stress signals, um, mechanical stress signals that will lay down bone along the line of optimal mechanical um, um, strength. So the reason that your bones are straight when they're not broken is because you laid them down because you're standing vertically and if you break them and you don't realign the bone, it tries to fix it. So it will try to realign your bone and make it straighter so it will resorb the stuff that's at a acute angle laterally and it will try to Put going down more immediately in order to try and correct the
1: load being That's brilliant. That's impressive. That is just brilliant. Brilliant. Oh yeah. Okay. See, one thing she said there, I just really caught my attention. She
2: said it was because we might, maybe, because we were vertical. I don't want to. I'm not going to say anything, you know. But elephant screws are essentially beetle
1: and bats are mostly in a time-oriented vertically as well. Not much else does. I'm going to be honest. Not much else does. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's something to think about there.
0: We've got a lot to think think about, about guys. I'm sorry if we've given you a bit too much to think about today. Because of our thick uterus lining, not only do we end up having periods, we also can't self-abort. Yes. Um, So other other animals can, in stress, when the when the animals stress, they can end the, I guess, birth cycle of their child. That's really, abortion, that's really common. Uh, because we've got such a permanent uterus lining, um, once it's going, yeah. it's going. And in so,
1: animals that have like sort of pack group structures, where you have one male that would defeat the other male and then take over the group, a lot of the times females just immediately abort all the babies they're having, because they they know that if they they have another, if they have the baby, then that will get killed by the by the new male that's just taken over the group. So they just. And even I mean, that's, that's really quite impressive. high primates as well, quite closely related to us. That is cool. I, I honestly, if cool. you'd asked me oh, out of the blue, I would have guessed most things menstruated to be- <music> That's not fair. It just shows a small day.
0: You know, when you're leaving a your shop and you see those two scanners at the exit Sam.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: Are you excited to talk about this, two scanners? I am a little, because I'm always a little... Do they actually work? Right, okay, you know what, I think... And how do they work, and what the fuck is going on there, and what are they scanning for? Because sometimes shoplifters get alarmed, sometimes you get alarmed, why do you get alarmed, why do shoplifters not get alarmed, what's going on? Right, that was a lot. Because it is physics. Do you... What do you want me to answer first? <laughs> yeah, I'd like you to hear. I like your guess. I always like your. My guess.
1: guess. I think. I, I. feel like. I feel like it's going to be. There's not. It, it's mostly guesswork, and it's mostly psychological to stop you stealing stuff. I think it's going to be one of those. One of those.
0: No. It, it does initially start. I think so. Some items are available to be picked up by this, and some items are not. Right, but it is a thing. And it uses similar physics to how car keys work and whatnot, like but that. They right? can't
1: just like microchip all their bananas or
0: something. Like how how how? No, they can't. They can't. They can't. But there are labels that contain thin antenna in them, right? That no. when they receive a receiving radio pulse from the scanning, like door scanner things, right? It reflects off the antenna, goes through the antenna, and if a certain part of the antenna is in a certain state, then it will send a radio wave back that will be picked up again um by the scanner and the scanner will set off an alarm and when you go to the checkout in some of these scanners and it's only in certain situations so with clothes it's that white plastic thing with a circle and then the rectangle coming off yeah yeah. and at the till they unclip yes yeah yeah. right i mean those i believe because they're you say a security tag right those ones are more complicated they contain a uh, you know, microchip and all sorts of transmitters and whatnot. That's why it's big. And it also contains a pack of ink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you try and and rip when it off. you break it off, if you if you try and rip it off or break it in some way to try and deface it, to remove it, then it will squirt ink on you and the clothes that you were trying to do. it. So It's very apparent what's going yeah. on. Um, if you look at RFID, it's called radio frequency identification and they're called RFID tags. And you can go into, I don't know if I'm screen sharing. Yeah, you are, you are. Right? right? It's labels, right? Here, here's a good example. This is an RFID tag clothes label, right? It looks standard. It's a slightly thicker card. Um, this is what it's got inside of it. Oh, okay. So they've got really, really thin pieces of computing. Anten- it's got an antenna. It's got a substrate. A coil. It's got a chip in it. It's got a coil in it. Um, and basically when you go through, it's not got a circuit in it, right? but you send a radio impulse towards Mm -hmm. it as it receives the radio impulse, it completes a circuit in it and starts an electrical impulse inside the antenna system. Mm -hmm. Right. And that produces a new specific frequency impulse that goes back to the activator antenna, which is the scanner um, saying that you've stolen this item. And I think Uh, You deactivate it with a a range of different ways at the checkout. Um, So if you look at a label, I think it often says on it, Uh if you look at a label and it says RFID on it, it means that your label contains a microchip scanning thing, right? RFID jewellery label, RFID clothes label. Mm -hmm. Not all labels have it, but you can often find on packages, it will say RFID on the label. Mm -hmm. And that means that it will be picked up on a scanner if you try and take it out of the shop.
1: (laughs) Wow, okay. So it's like, it's like a zip card that you don't want to scan.
0: Yeah, basically. Um, but it's longer range. Oh.
1: Okay, that's quite cool. Um, and so-
0: and th- there are lots of different types. So there's like RF ones, radio frequency ones. There's RFID ones, there's RFID tags, clips, all sorts, mm-hmm. right? There's loads of different types, and there's lots of different applications for it. They sometimes put it in animals to track them. They put it in cars so they can track it during the manufacturing process, mm-hmm. They put it in uh, pets. They put it in, not in pets. I think it's in collars or whatnot. It's all sorts. No, it, might, it might be microchipping. No, that's not it. Is it? That's just yeah. They probably put it in microchip. It, it might be. It's probably a similar thing in microchipping. Passports. RFID e-passports issued in oh, Malaysia in 1998. That's clever. Transport pavements, animal identification, so human implantation. That's scary. RFID technology are being routinely implanted in humans. The first ever to receive an RFID microchip implant was an American artist, Eduardo Kac, in 1997. Kac implanted the microchip on live television and also live on the internet in context of his artwork, The Time Capsule. A year later, British professor of cybernetics, Kevin Warwick, had an RFID chip implanted in his arm by his general practitioner, George Bourloss. Why? I don't know. Lots of different things. Anyway, so those things at the doors of all your shops are scanning for RFID microchips, which are at some point uh, somewhere on your item of clothing, not in the item of clothing, not in the thing you're buying. On the tags, they are often RFID delivery boxes. Oh you see, it says okay. contains RFID labels on this label here. yeah it's a fucking thing. You know, it's a thing. They're everywhere. They've got tiny little pieces of electronics inside the label that you can peel off. So you've got slightly thicker labels. If you peel the label into multiple pieces, you'll find layers containing antennas.
1: That's really smart. There must be items that don't have the RFID.
0: I was I was checking my IKEA Unishop and I was seeing not RFIDs on my labels. I was looking at the text and it didn't say RFID mm-hmm. and it didn't have RFID. It's really cool though. It's really cool. Like a, like if you stole like a Cadbury's chocolate buttons, nowhere on that package is there room to put an RFID <laughs> tag. It's true. So like you can just clear those out of yeah, the they're, shop. Yeah, they're never catching
1: actually. you. Just take the buttons.
0: Yeah. So if you put them in your pocket and you walk out of the shop, we're not saying you do this. In no way are we advising shoplifting, but they're not, it's not going to set the arm off. Yes
1: we're not advising chocolate protein. it's just a although we are just going to say that they are very tasty do with that what
0: you will <laughs> we advise the purchase of Cadbury chocolate button. you know i'll throw it in as well terry's chocolate orange oh, guy God. talking about this with a friend recently terry's who makes terry's chocolate orange real dude called terry he was a chemist made the chocolate orange smell started his own he started his own chocolate company as a side then his sons took over when he died um, and now it's become Terry's Thing chocolate is, orange. I was that's originally cool.
1: surprised by that, but in retrospect, there's no board meeting where they're just saying let's call it Terry's chocolate orange, and there's just no reason why they call, like there's then there's no one named
0: Terry. Yeah, right. Cool. Are you happy with RFID tags? Pretty
1: happy. I guess that's one of those things where I always want, I always should have wondered how they work, but I never did. Here's my question. Here's my question, Henry. Why why does it sometimes go off when you haven't sold
0: anything? They often include RFID tags initially, not for shoplifting. But they just put in the scanner anyway because it's already got an RFID tag. So you might as well use that RFID tag to check if it's been paid for. Yeah, a smart shoplifter knows that an RFID tag can be peeled off or warily shielded from the reader at the gate. Ooh, the cost of item tagging is higher than the risk of shoplifting from most low priced items found in the supermarket. There we go.
1: Shit, that's some, that's, that's some good knowledge.
0: RFID tags should be attached to garments like in Zara's, Coles, Macy's, etc. The to tags by information about the garment, dates of acquisition, manufacture, etc. As soon as it's detected by the RFID readers that are usually found at the gates, it triggers the alarms go off. The shoplifter is immediately detected. However, when buying the same garment, the cashier usually kills the RFID tag so it won't cause any troubles at the gates.
1: Right. So it's probably when they forget to kill the RFID. Yeah, something like that. Nice. That makes sense. Ooh,
0: here's an interesting thing. I set it off oh, going to the grocery shit. store. I thought it was my keys, but later emptied my wallet, which had a hotel room door unlock card in it. So another thing which uses an RFID can. <laughs> I bought a pair of blue jeans in the morning and went through the x-ray scanner at the airport. Ah, the security guard said I had an no. invisible tag on my jeans that I didn't see because it was clear. I had him locate it and remove it. Um, basically, there's lots of situations where RFID tags from different things set up other RFID scanners. So
1: like hotel key cards or...
0: Basically, the scanner's at the door of the supermarket. This is what you're going to edit to. The scanner's at the door of the supermarket, right? If the supermarket contains items which are expensive enough to require an RFID tag, right? Mm -hmm. If you're buying an item which is expensive enough to require an RFID tag, there will be a mechanism for which they remove that RFID tag when you buy it, right? Yes. If that has not worked, or if you contain another thing which uses an RFID tag, and you walk through the door, you will set off the alarm. Yes. There's probably lots of other different steps and stages to this, but that's the general idea. At least you know something about it now. You're listening to The Substandard Model.